Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Our topic today is dream premonitions. My guest is Christopher Robinson, who is co-author with Andy Boot of the book Dream Detective. He's also the subject of the documentary Premonition Man, produced by John Beecher, who has been a guest on New Thinking Aloud. A number of researchers and government officials have testified to the uncanny accuracy of Christopher's dreams in predicting dramatic events such as terrorist attacks. While his abilities have been tested in various laboratories, nothing has yet been published in a peer-reviewed journal. In this sense, he is similar to Ted Owens, the PK man, whom I studied and about whom I wrote a book. In fact, a new book about Christopher Robin is in preparation by Grant and Jane Solomon to be titled The Premonition Man. In this interview, we will see and hear him tell his story in his own words. Christopher is based in the United Kingdom, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Christopher. It's a pleasure to be with you today. It's an absolute pleasure for me to be with you, too. You have one of the most remarkable stories uh, that I have ever encountered, and it's been going on now for over 40 years. You've been investigated in different scientific laboratories. You've worked with law enforcement agencies. You've worked with Scotland Yard. You've worked with American agencies. Why don't we go back uh, to the beginning? I've heard different accounts of where your story begins, and, and I know it probably goes back to your childhood. It probably does. It's interesting. Um, I was dreaming last night of lots of things that I'd done that connected to the psychic or whatever we want to call it, uh, that I'd forgotten. So if you like, last night's dreams were a reminder of things that went back to when I was 15 or 16. Uh, it, it was like a replay. and uh, I don't know whether that was because I need to know those things, because otherwise I would have said to you tonight, well, I can't remember all of that. <laughs> it's interesting whether they're prompting me to remember. But the main things started um, in the middle of the 80s. You were, according to the stories uh, th that I have read and heard, you were about 35 years old and had a heart attack. Yes, that's true. I was uh, in a boat um, with some undesirable people, uh, and I had this heart attack. Um, it was the middle of the night. Uh, I obviously was asleep initially, woke up to terrible crushing pains uh, in my chest. Uh, then 
found I couldn't breathe. Uh, and then I suppose it might not be the right way of putting it, but I lost part consciousness. And then I'm floating up through the boat up into the sky uh, into this big room with a huge bright white light and strange looking I can only call them light beings in there they were kind of human kind of not um I think you could pretty much say you could see through them I, I, I guess a typical ghostly kind of image um and I'm desperately um, panicking to breathe. And one of these, whoever they were, said, Christopher, you don't need to breathe anymore. You're coming with us. And I'm thinking, oh, no, I'm not. <laughs> and I'm st really still aware of being alive uh, and fighting for breath. Uh, and after a, I don't know how long, it's impossible to say, um, I was asked, well, why, you know, why don't you want to come with us? And I immediately said, who will help Frank if I come with you? Um, and I don't know, they must have known who Frank was. I didn't need to give them an explanation as to who Frank was. Um, but I said, you know, the corrupt guys are going to win if Frank doesn't win. Uh, and I was helping him and I'd been helping him probably at that point for four years battling against, um, well, it, it, <clears throat> police corruption, judicial system corruption. It, be it became a big, huge test trial case. Uh, in 1985 um, uh, and it started with my case and then they settled Frank's uh, and I believe they settled perhaps up to a hundred other ones where um, they'd been doing all sorts of things that they shouldn't do. Um, <clears throat> so they then looked at me and said, well, Christopher, because you haven't asked for something for yourself we are prepared to allow you to go back uh and with that um i felt enormous relief i'm still kind of in two places uh and they said to me i i think it was like okay so before you go you have to promise to live in both worlds uh, and I thought, live in both worlds? Yeah, sure, whatever. <laughs> I think, I think I'd agree. I would have agreed to almost anything at that point to come back. Um, and I had no idea at all what living in two worlds meant or could mean even, I think, at that point. Uh, and then you wake up and you've got chest pains. And later on that day, I got to a hospital and they did. I don't know what they call them, some blood tests and things like that. Uh, and they said uh, that I'd had a heart attack, which I think I already knew. 
<clears throat> there's a, an extra little bit to this because the boat I was in was in Holland. I got back home to England, I don't know, probably four or five days later. Uh, and I went to, it was my house, but my ex-wife and son uh, and her two other children were living there. Uh, and I went to, to my house and because they were living there, I didn't use a key. I knocked on the door. And my son, Paul, who was, I think, 15 at the time, came to the door and he said, oh, dad, you're not dead. I said, Paul, what do you mean I'm not dead? He said, a few days ago, you were in my dream and you died. And I really started to think, whoa, he doesn't know anything about what's happened to me or my experience. Yet he had a dream that I died. In fact, I was talking to him about this at the weekend, seeing how much of it he could remember. And he said, I shall never forget it, Dad. So that's kind of a real turning change point in my life because, you know, I've met some other beings from somewhere else and I've, I suppose, kind of been dead and back alive again. And my son in England experienced what was happening to me. And it made me start to think of all sorts of things. Now, if I understand the story correctly, your, your work with Frank, this mysterious work that had you on a boat in Holland with people of an unsavory nature, uh, occurred because you already had a highly attuned intuition, let us say, and, and people recognized that and uh, called upon you for help. So if I go back to the mid-70s, uh, in fact, 1976, uh, there'd been one or two strange instances or inst what what should I say? There'd been one or two strange sets of circumstances uh, involving me. Uh, and because of that, um, some of the people who were aware of that um, invited me to a hotel in London. Uh, for breakfast one Saturday morning uh, and offered me um, some training and a job in a secret, strange organization. <laughs> um, and I, they didn't say exactly who they were other than I knew they were UK intelligence officers. And I didn't know what compartment I would end up in but they did say that there are various compartments that we operate. But it wasn't a, it wasn't going to be a single operation. It was going to be, um, I don't know how to explain it. Um, you, you, you could be tasked, and I was tasked, to do all sorts of things mm -hmm. for years. Uh, and it wasn't just the police. It was other parts of um, intelligence gathering organizations. The police have, at that time, they had um, their own um, groups of intelligence gathering. Uh, so they had 
groups that would specialize in anti-terrorism and groups that would specialize in fraud and uh, and I think I touched on all of them over the next 10 years. So going back to the 1970s. Yes. And and what do you think attracted uh, you to them? I know you told me earlier about a case in which a, a a rapist had been identified who looked exactly like you. That was one of the circumstances. That I think was the precursor, uh-huh. if that's the right term. Uh, and there were lots of I don't know how many there were, but there were lots of other things that. I got involved in um, with initially the local police force, uh, but then I, again, I, don't, I, I didn't ever find out how it all came about. I know some of the story, um, but I am now not going to be attached to um, well, I, not not going to be attached to one police station or one police force. Basically, what they said to me is, you're in a position to do things that we can't do. You're in a position to go to places that we can't go. And sometimes things have to happen uh, that we can't acknowledge that we're involved in. It was pretty much like that. Uh, And was was I up for um, doing some of these strange things uh, and... You're on your own. Um, we will help you as much as we can, but some of the things you will be doing on your own. And th- there's amazing things I got involved in. So this is well before your heart attack experience. Yes, yes, yes. And and you were already, I assume, having precognitive dreams at that point. Not that I was aware of. No, no. I mean, people used to say to me that I was working with, how did you know that? You know, or what what makes you think in that direction? Or, And I used to say, I don't know. For years, it was um, one particular officer always used to say the same thing. In fact, I met him not long ago, and he said the same thing again. Where does the information come from? Well, when the dream started after the heart attack, I then understood a bit more about where it comes from. But before, I didn't know where it came. I just, I used to say, I just know. I just know. I don't know how I know. Uh, and it that would be, you know, I guess most of the time when, you know, when I rep- even when I was still repairing televisions, I'd go to somebody's house and I'd walk up the pathway to the door, carrying the part I thought had broken. <laughs> I mean, and that people used to say, you're psychic. And I said, don't be silly. I should thing as psychic. But you start to wonder. And it really was just a complete jumble of how on earth did I get involved in that? And why did that happen? How did I know that? Um, I'm, I'm just trying to think of something that I can tell you. Well, I do know this, Christopher. We talked about it already, that in your days as a television repairman, you had, I think, more than one UFO sighting. So the first UFO sighting was in August 1971. 
uh, and I'd come home from work, parked my television repair van. Uh, it was a company at that time called Rediffusion Television. Uh, and I'd gone to my front door. And just before I went in, I looked up and I saw it was quite small, but it looked like it was a boat shaped object. And it was changing color and it was moving around in the sky. And I just stood there for, I don't know how long, a few minutes looking at it. And I thought to myself, you always said to yourself, if you see one of these things, you're not going to be the only one to see it. So I knocked on all the doors on the, it was like a village green. Uh, and it ended up with about, I don't know, 40 or 50 people standing on the green watching this object for two, two and a half hours. We got the newspaper came up and did a little story, took, took a picture of it. Um, the police came up and had a look at what we were all doing, what, you know, they contacted the airport, I know, because where I lived was right on a flight path. Uh, and the airport, as far as I remember, hadn't got uh, any information about this. It was probably too high, you know, way above, you know, where planes would be coming in on a glide path. But it was just extraordinary. And it makes you think. Uh, and then in the October... And I can tell you the date because I just uh, today looked at the television recording of that event. It was the 26th of October, 1971. I saw another one. Uh, and this time I was on the roof of a building with a friend of mine uh, and we were erecting an aerial system. Uh, and I'm standing there with a pole in my hand and looked across to the northeast, uh, it was a beautiful, bright, clear blue sky, uh, and there's this gold, a golden pea. It was just looked like a, a pea in the sky, glistening gold, uh, and it just shot across the sky as fast as I turned my head, like that, uh, and it stopped, and I said to Malcolm, the guy I was with, I said, did you see that? And he said, I just, he did, he caught it as it was going across. Uh, and of course, it stopped, we could still see it. Uh, and we stood there and we watched it and we watched it. Uh, and then at some point, it came back a little bit and stopped again. Uh, and then it came back. I, I guess we probably watched it. I mean, it's difficult to tell the time how long it was, but I think it was probably um, five minutes, four minutes that we're watching this thing. And it goes back and it's gone. Uh, and that night on the ATV News, independent uh, television news, there it is. They filmed it in Oxfordshire. Now, we'd report, both Malcolm and I had reported to the police that we'd seen this thing. Uh, and, of course, everybody thought we were crazy until the news that evening. Uh, and, of course, now everybody's seen it. Uh, and it was sometime later, two officers from the Royal Air Force investigation, whatever they were, came to see us. Uh, Malcolm lived opposite me, so it was easy for them to interview both of us. Um, I wasn't present 
uh, in Malcolm's house when he was interviewed. He wasn't in with me. I don't know whether it makes any difference, uh, but perhaps they wanted to hear our story separately. Uh, and I think it was about another, I don't know, let's say another five or six weeks after that, they came back again. Uh, and um, they said to me, we don't know what that was. We've managed to find a radar track or something, uh, and we tracked it over a 100 miles in three seconds. Uh, and they wanted, and they did, they took both of us back to where we saw this thing uh, and sort of kind of measured your there, then you're over there. It was probably three or four seconds that we saw it move. Um, and um, he said to me, he said, we haven't got anything secret or otherwise that can do that. I remember those words very clearly. Uh, we haven't got anything secret or otherwise that can do that. And, of course, I don't suppose we still have, not that I'm aware of, you know, 80 or 90,000 miles an hour and stop dead and then go back the other way. <laughs> and, of course, it was it was just so, so crazy. So um, I don't know what to say, really. You, you see two of them in a short space of time. Uh, but it certainly got my interest in the whole subject. Yeah. Uh, I I became very interested in that. Well, and there are many accounts of people who have sightings such as yours who then begin to develop heightened intuitive and psychic abilities. That's true. I'm, I've been told that, uh, and I've read about that, uh, and I've been asked about that by many people, uh, most of them people with authority, do I think that that had any um, influence or bearing on what happened later on? I don't know. This, the short answer is, how would I know? I don't know. Um, but I, I agree. I've read lots of accounts uh, of people that have said that. Um, personally, I think that um, having that heart attack and making a deal to come back and promising to live in both worlds, as crazy as that might sound to people, uh, was what really uh, changed why I was now dreaming what terrorists and other criminals are doing. And, of course, it was pointed out to me, and anyway, I was quite aware of it. I had all the connections already to take that information to. I didn't have to find them. I didn't have to go to the police station and say I've had a dream about something. The connections were already made. Um, you can read into that what you like, but people have said to me, maybe it was all part of a plan from ET or the spirit world or, mm. you know, that you would have all these connections and then you would see these things. I don't know what's far-fetched anymore, to be honest, Jeffrey. 
You you may not know, I wrote a book called The PK Man. I know there's be a book being written about you now called The Premonition Man. And The PK Man explained to me he also had an alien connection, and he claimed they had been watching him since childhood and helping to manipulate his life in different ways so that he... Uh, had many different professions that he worked in that gave what he said was uh, the mental flexibility in order to understand the complex communications that would come from them. Wow. Um, I certainly had the right connections to go to um, with information about any criminal subject. I had contacts everywhere by the time I was living in both worlds and I was seeing these crimes. I know at one point in your story, there's uh, an instance in which a police woman, I believe her name was Yvonne, who was murdered. And, and you developed a particular psychic connection with her after her death. Yes, it's, there's more to that story. Um, the day that incident happened, I was in Hyde Park, uh, having a meeting with two Scotland Yard officers, uh, and they had to cut the meeting with me short because their pages went off and they were called to that incident. Um, and lots of people, uh, police officers, have said to me since then, did I feel there was a connection with being with officers at the time she was murdered? I, I, I don't know. It does seem strange that yet, you know, again, I'm there somewhere on the scene. I mean, it's, it's really strange. And I don't know how much planning the other ETs or can do with all of this but it certainly seems really strange and uh, I certainly got invited to become involved in lots of um, operations that some were running already some I had to engineer in order to get into the situation and be of value in it um um, the one with Frank, um, I was asked um, in 19, I don't know, I think 79 or 80, I was asked, uh, would I be interested in setting myself up to get involved with this big corrupt network uh, and working on the inside, if you like, as a victim, uh, but as a victim by choice to collect all the evidence uh, and make sure that things happened. And and I, I was really happy to do that. Uh, and I got involved very deeply in that. I did get help from uh, a couple of policemen and retired officers. Uh, and, and I think the, the trial judge made some comments in his judgment that it, I think one of them was, it has never been explained to me how Mr. Robinson knew that. 
<laughs> and it was, it, and I'm sitting there thinking, yeah, well, I'm probably never going to explain it to you. But it was clear that things happen uh, that even the highest people in the land are unaware of. There's just these very small compartments, you know, where things get engineered uh, and the world only sees the result of the engineering, not the not the reason for it or, you know, you know why it was well I think they they would know why it would be necessary if they knew it was engineered from day one hmm. but it's interesting I mean I've had a quite an interesting life back to this policewoman Yvonne can you uh, describe uh, how she began to communicate with you after her death well she would be in a dream and we need she would say to me her name or she would give me her initials in I don't know how to explain it uh, so she would be there in the dream and she would say your friend or something like that and of course when I wrote down your friend in a dream and I hadn't been aware of the source I would associate it with her. And this happened a lot. The initials seems to be a big thing in the spirit or ET communication we get it, initials. Uh, and, um, of course she was Yvonne Fletcher, YF, um, and KB for Keith Blakelock. And it happened all the time. Uh, and the first time it became really kind of spooky for me is I was told in a dream and this is this is going to sound mad to everybody to make it easier on you we will give you the postcode of the location of the, the coming attack and I would get postcodes zip codes in, in America so I would get a vision of three steering wheels uh, and I would put steering wheel times three SW3 I would get the first time it happened was LE1 uh, and there was a bomb in Leicester uh, and this, is, this was the very first time I got a postcode so I called um, Leicester police station and asked them if LE1 was their postcode uh, I thought it was but in those days, there was no computers that we have now. You couldn't look it up just like that. Uh, and I explained to them that I'd had this dream with a LE1 postcode uh, and a bomb going off uh, today. Uh, and I think I even earlier that day had given a statement to my local police station. Uh, I, th I think... I'm sure that's right. It was that event. Uh, and I'd made a statement saying that um, I'd had a dream and a bomb goes off in LE1. Uh, in, in fact, I'm 100% sure, I think, yes, that I'd done that as well. And, of course, then I phoned Leicester Police Station and asked them. I just, I don't know, I just wanted to ask them. Uh, and, of course, then I got um, people, she was a, a, a 
a police superintendent uh, and somebody else came to see me the following day and I went through the dream and I went through some of my history with her. I mean, they knew I wasn't a bomber. You know, I was miles from Leicester, couldn't possibly have got there and put a bomb under an army vehicle. And anyway, you know, why would I? You know, I wasn't involved in any terrorist group or anything. Uh, at this point, I this was the beginning. Uh, you know, a bomb goes off in LE1 and got postcodes for all sorts of things after that. Um, and, uh, I mean, I, just hundreds of cases. There really are hundreds of events and cases where I was given a postal code to make it easy. I mean, I don't know what the police initially thought. They must have thought, you know, that... <laughs> They died and gone to heaven too. I don't know. I do. I do know the the most common phrase given to me from the police was, "Christopher, if what you're doing is real and you're doing it, it means everything else we've ever been taught is wrong." And that was said to me a lot. Well, was it the case that uh, in your many interactions with the police that the information you provided was instrumental in preventing a uh, terrorist act or a crime? Yes, sometimes. Sometimes. Um, I can tell you um, there was a bomb in Hayes, uh, which we found from a dream. Uh, there was... An incident in St. Albans, I think it was probably 1991, where I dreamt um, that two terrorists had gone, walked up to a bank, gone to St. Albans, walked up to a bank and put a padded envelope bomb through the letterbox and it blew up and killed them. Now, I obviously went to the police with that that day. Um, we set up um, an arrangement that I thought it was going to be on the Friday night. I would be available on the Friday night. Um, and what happened was just after 10 o'clock, like a, a, a bomb went off in my head. Boom. And then the phone rang and it was Sergeant Clements and he said to me, all hell's gone off in St. Albans. They want you over there. Uh, and this is where it gets quite funny. Uh, my card broken down. I only had a, a little moped. Uh, I made my way to St. Albans on a moped. The whole town was cordoned off. Uh, I put the bike on a stand, went up to a police officer. I said, I'm a psychic. Uh, and I warned of this bomb uh, and they were waiting for me to go in and talk to them. And he, I remember what he said, and I'm Father Christmas. Get back on your bike and get out of here. Uh, and I made a nuisance of myself. Eventually they radioed in and I got took in there. Um, and what had happened was, and of course I didn't know what was going on in St. Albans, um, an army band, a military band, was playing in the um, pavilion concert hall or whatever it's called there. Uh, and they put spotters 
on the roofs of the buildings. And the spotters had seen two people walking up the high street with a suspicious looking padded envelope and standing outside the bank. What then happened was, uh, it was 10 o'clock, the audience was not allowed to leave the hall. They locked them down. Uh, and I know that these two terrorists were standing there looking at their watches, uh, wondering where the people are, because I think what happened is when they pushed it through, probably set the timer and as it hit the floor and nobody here. So they waited and waited and waited. And I think they put it through and they'd waited too long because it blew up and only killed them. Now, what I was told, and it's obvious really as well, if the people had been let out at 10 o'clock, there would have been dozens, if not hundreds of people in the square outside the bank when that bomb went off. Uh, and the glass, I, I, I was taken there by the police that night. There was bits of plate glass everywhere. I mean, they would have been torn to shreds. Uh, and they said to me, you know, if we hadn't been looking for that, they people would have been let out and, you know, maybe the terrorists wouldn't have been killed. Hmm. The really strange thing about that, of course, uh, I'll tell you is that the police wanted to identify um, the two bombers. Uh, they've got, basically they said, we've got bits in a bucket uh, and we want to try and, can you tell us who they are? And I said, no, but I will ask a dream who they are. Uh, and I think on by the Tuesday, I met up with Chief Inspector Hall uh, and I insisted on reporters being there. At this, I said, I'm not telling you unless the press are there because I'm fed up with this being pushed under the carpet and being ridiculed by everybody for what I do. This is real and people need to know. So he agreed. Uh, and they, I think, I think his name was Kieran Saunders from the Sun newspaper, uh, came to a Chinese restaurant and we had lunch. Uh, and he said, right, what have you got for names? Uh, and I explained the dream to him. Uh, I said, um, well, basically, there was, I'd seen a shop with a name outside, um, and it was called Ryan's. Um, there was, what else was there? A broken handle on an electric drill, Black and Decker, uh, and another person I knew called Donnelly. Um, and there was something else in this that I can't remember at the moment. But basically, one of the terrorists was called uh, Francis Ryan. Uh, and the woman was called something Donnelly. Patricia Donnelly. She was called Patricia Donnelly. Uh, and there was something about something about a Dugan as well. If I remember, it's a long time ago, trying to remember. Um, uh, and I said, and, and he's probably the getaway driver. If we're talking about madness, it turns out that 
back in the summer, I had met these two terrorists at a fate at the hospice uh, in Luton. Um, the chief fundraiser for the hospice uh, was a superintendent of police called Brian Sharp. Uh, and he'd invited me to go there uh, and give tarot card readings or crystal ball readings, dress up as a wizard uh, to collect some money for the hospice. Uh, and I think I put a strange hat on. It was just funny. Uh, but we we raised about, I don't know, personally about 40 or 50 pounds, you know, in this little tent for the hospice that day. But the last two people that came to see me were these two terrorists. And the man um, was nervous uh, and the woman was kind of into all these kind of weird things. And she said to me, would I look at his palm? And I said, yes, I'll look at his palm. Uh, and his lifeline stopped halfway down. It was completely missing. And then she showed me hers. And hers stopped half. I'd never seen it before. I used to look at all sorts of people's palms and see if you could read them. And Both of them had these cut off. She said to me, does that mean we're going to die? Well, they died together. Yeah. And I'm really scratching my head now. And I, I, I remember sitting with Roger Sharp telling him the story. And he, he, he said, what's going on? I said, I don't know. It's just weird. Yeah. I mean, it is strangeness. It's, you know, the, ch the chances that I would have even seen them. It's, it's, you know, there's just so many things in my life that d don't make sense. And most people would find it really difficult to believe. But you're faced with believing them if you've done them. Yeah. <laughs> That's what well, I gather it was about this time that the police recommended that you meet with a well-known British psychologist, Keith Hearn, who was a specialist in lucid dreaming, among other things. It was connected to the terrorists that I'd warned about in Cheltenham in Gloucestershire. So I've had another dream where I'm in a hotel and there's terrorists there uh, and I'm in um, in the dream. I'm in Cheltenham in Gloucestershire uh, and I knew the name of the hotel was something park. And the police did two things. They took me to a hypnotherapist who had an office right opposite the police station. Uh, and did a hypnotic, you know, you know, go to sleep and answer a load of questions. Uh, and they recorded that on tape. But I was told that that tape no longer exists. And this was at the time. I said, can I have a copy of the tape? And they said, no, nope, doesn't exist. Hmm. You will never see that tape. You will never hear from that tape again. So I can't really remember what went on in the session. Uh, but at that same time, uh, they introduced me to Keith Hearn. Um, I don't know whether they gave me his phone number or they gave him mine. I can't remember. He perhaps remember better than me. 
but at, at the same time, that's what we did. Uh, and Keith Hearn, well, over over a period of years, came to stay with me, and he'd sit up all night watching me dream, watching me write things down, um, just as an observer, you know, um, to, to just to see what I was doing and. Was I really waking up or was I doing it without waking up? And he studied it for a number of years. Uh, but he certainly came to stay with us, you know, many times um, mm. to sit and watch me sleep. And I, I recall he you know, testified in an earlier documentary about you, Premonition Man, that while he was working with you, he had firsthand experience of one of your dreams involving a terrorist attack. And that particular documentary goes into some detail about how you had learned to interpret the dream symbolism, that it wasn't always straightforward. There were symbols which I, I guess I learned to interpret, you know, when, so what you do, you keep dreaming of something and you think, now why am I dreaming of that? Uh, uh, and the terrorists were sometimes seen as people, but often seen as dogs. So I'd be watching a car with two dogs in it driving along the road they would then become people. Uh, so dogs meant terrorists. Snow was imminent danger. Heavy rain was um, not it, not the same kind of danger as snow, but it would be, I mean, if you dreamt of the snow, it was really nasty. If there was heavy rain, it was um, an incident, but, Maybe nobody died. Cups were always dead people. So if there were four cups, there would be four dead people. The same as my uh, dream of Princess Diana's death. Um, there were cups and cylinders. and So, yes, I wrote down very carefully all the dreams I could remember for years. And I looked at when certain things appeared. When do dogs appear? When do symbols of something else appear? Um, all sorts. But the main symbols were dogs, cups, snow, uh, heavy rain. I can't think for the moment what other symbols there were. But they were the main ones. One of the, one of the most profound, I think, dreams was I dreamt of two planes colliding midair. Uh, and I'd seen the two pilots eject safely to the ground. Uh, and I was thinking, where is this? What is this? I did discuss it uh, with a police officer, Sergeant Richard McGregor. Uh, and I phoned a friend of mine uh, called Penny Thornton and asked her what she thought. Uh, and she said, well, that's funny because I've been dreaming of telephoto lenses and you. And I said to her, wow. She said, there's an air show today in Gloucester, which is 100 miles approximately from my house. Um, from the dream, I, I suspected at that point that the planes would collide at four o'clock 
uh, in the dream, I looked at my watch to see what time it was. Uh, and I said to my wife, uh, come on, let's go. To, let's go and watch these planes collide. Uh, so we took our little daughter uh, and we drove to Gloucester, to Fairford. It's about 100 miles uh, from uh, my house where I lived at that time. Uh, and we got there just before, I think, quarter to four. Uh, and we parked the car. It was very difficult to find somewhere to park. Uh, and we walked over to a fence where um, there was a whole crowd of people who hadn't got into the show either, watching um, from from a field. And uh, there was a policeman there. Uh, and I said to him, at four o'clock, two planes are going to crash into one another. And he looked at me. Now, I'd already told Sergeant Richard McGregor, one of my contacts, about this in the morning. I'd also phoned the News of the World Sunday newspaper and told them that two planes were going to crash. Uh, and I hoped to be able to be there and watch it. Um, anyway, four o'clock, these two MiGs started a manoeuvre. Uh, and minutes into their manoeuvre, they collided with one another. Uh, and I saw the parachutes eject um, because we were quite far away from the airfield. We didn't see the, the, the wreckage hit the ground or anything. Um, but I was speechless. I found it. I don't know, it took me two or three minutes to even get words out. My wife couldn't talk all the way home. I was saying, you're right, love, you're right. And she's, I mean, she was absolutely in shock uh, that, you know, her crazy husband's going to go and watch planes crashes and it happens. She was, uh, I mean, but imagine that. You can actually go there and watch it happen. Um and nobody was hurt, which I knew. Um, it's there was just so many things, yeah. you know. I mean, it, it can't all be a coincidence. And of course, I was still asking that at this point. You know, we were back in the early nineties. You know, nineteen ninety-two, ninety. I think the the air show was ninety-three. You know, and I was still questioning. This can't really be happening. You know, I even said to my wife on many occasions, am I dead? Is this what it's like when you're dead? You can see things and talk to people who are all... I mean, I, honestly, I, for a long time, in fact, I think until I did more experiments with um, police and people like that, um, I really thought this is all some kind of weird dream and I haven't woken up from it yet. It was just, um, I don't know. I, it's, I mean, I know it's all real now. You know, when the planes hit the buildings at 9-11, you know, my life changed again. Well, even before 9-11, here we are in 1992, as, as you say, you must have, by this time, come to the attention of the popular media uh, after all of these events. Yes, Um I I can remember one occasion I'd been on a radio show 
Uh, and this particular radio show, they'd asked me what I was seeing next in a dream. Uh, and I said on the radio show, oh, I said, that's easy. Um, there's a bomb on a bus uh, in central London. Uh, I said, it's, I think, on Waterloo Bridge. Um, anyway, I got back from the radio show um, and there's a man on my doorstep from a newspaper and he's heard me say that there's a bomb on a bus in, in central London um, tonight. And he said, can I come in and wait for it to go off? <laughs> we said we invited him in and he said, do you really think it's going to happen? I said, well, if it's following the normal kind of routine, yes, this is going to happen. Uh, and he sat there uh, and he had a cup of tea and some biscuits. And he, I think we probably had to wait an hour or two uh, when... There it is on the television news flash. Bomb gone off in central London on a bus. And it had to be. This is really happening to me. It isn't imagination. Nobody could imagine all these things. Nobody could be successful in doing all this. But, but as the police inspector said, if you're doing this, and you are, Everything else we've ever been taught is wrong. And I keep coming back to that in my mind. Well, Christopher, I know we've just barely scratched the surface in all of the uh, many events. I think uh, in conclusion for today, it's useful to point out that not all of your dreams have have been accurate. I assume, because in, in general, in the field of parapsychology, or like baseball, the greatest baseball players have batting averages. And, and you know, sometimes uh, Babe Ruth will strike out more than he'll hit a home run. Basically, how I look at it, uh, and how the police used to look at it, is they'd ask me to score it. One to ten, how likely do you think? interesting thing through the scoring process was that I realized I could, you know, I realized I could ask questions and then analyze the dream to get the answer out of it, to translate it for an answer. Uh, and of course, that is quite, that's much more successful than taking a whole load of dreams and wondering what they fit but you know when you say when you say two planes are going to collide and you're underneath them and you watch it happen that's not a coincidence when you say there's a bomb on a bus in central london tonight and there is you know how many bombs have been on buses in the last 30 years two possibly three there were there was one on the seven seven bombings uh in, and you know and that's a whole nother story because uh, I was working with an intelligence officer from a United States on that one. Uh, we were looking at what was going on. What did these dreams mean? Well, that's a whole other story. But yes, not everything you see happens. Um, lots of it you never understand. 
but using the codes, the dogs, the, the snow, you can put it down and say, nine out of ten, this is what this is saying. Uh, and the rest of it we just call noise, I suppose. Well, you've got a fascinating story. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, we've just been scratching the surface. I would love to have you back uh, many times, actually, so that we can really cover the breadth of your career, Christopher. I think this is a uh, important story that the public, and in particular, the New Thinking Aloud audience deserves to know about. Well, I would be delighted uh, to come on work on your show with you anytime you want. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being with me today, Christopher. It's been a real pleasure. Uh, I could go on and on about the different researchers and investigators who have attested to the validity of what you're doing. And uh, we'll probably include some of that information in the description of this video. Uh, but I look forward to our next conversation. And once again, thank you so much for being with me. Thank you for having me. And for those of you listening or watching, thank you for being with us. 